telltale heart. It's true. I have been ill, very ill. But why do you say that I have lost control of my mind? Why do you say that I am mad? Can you not see that I have full control of my mind? Is it not clear that I am not mad? Indeed, the illness only made my mind, my feelings, my senses stronger, more powerful. My sense of hearing, especially, became more powerful. I could hear sounds I had never heard before. I heard sounds from heaven. And I heard sounds from hell. Listen. Listen and I will tell you how it happened. You will see. You will hear how healthy my mind is. It is impossible to say how the idea first entered my head. There was no reason for what I did. I did not hate the old man. I even loved him. He had never hurt me. I did not want his money. I think was his eye. His eye was like the eye of a vulture. The eye of one of those terrible birds watch and wait while an animal dies and then fall upon the dead body and pull it to pieces to eat it. When the old man looked at me with his vulture eye, a cold feeling went up and down Even my blood became cold. And so, I finally decided I had to kill the old man and close that eye forever. So, you think that I am mad. A madman cannot plan. But you should have seen me. During all of the week, I was as friendly to the old man as I could be and warm and loving. Every night, about 12 o'clock, I slowly opened his door. And when the door was opened wide enough, I put my hand in, and then my head. In my hand, I held a light, covered over with a cloth, so that no light showed. And I stood there quietly. Then, carefully, I lifted the cloth just a little so that a single, thin, small light fell across the eye. For seven nights I did this, seven long nights, every night at midnight. Always the eye was closed, so it was impossible for me to do the work, for it was not the old man I felt I had to kill. It was the eye, his evil eye. And every morning I went to his room. With a warm, friendly voice, I asked him how he had slept. He could not guess that every night, just at twelve, I looked in at him as he slept. The eighth night, I was more than usually careful as I opened the door. 
The hands of a clock move more quickly than did my hand. Never before have I felt so strong in my own power. I was now sure of success. The old man was lying there, not dreaming that I was at his door. Suddenly he moved in his bed. You may think I became afraid, but no. The darkness in his room was thick and black. I knew he could not see the opening of the door. I continued to push the door. Slowly, softly, I put in my head. I put in my hand with the covered light. Suddenly, the old man sat straight up in bed and cried, Who's there? I stood quite still. For a whole hour, I did not move. Nor did I hear him again. Lie down in his bed. He just sat there, listening. Then I heard a sound, a low cry of fear, which escaped from the old man. Now I knew that he was sitting up in his bed, filled with fear. I knew that he knew that I was there. He did not see me there. He could not hear me there. He felt me there. Now he knew that death was standing there. Slowly, Little by little, I lifted the cloth until a small, small light escaped from under it to fall upon, to fall upon that vulture eye. It was open, wide, wide open, and my anger increased as it looked straight at me. I could not see the old man's face, only the eye. That hard blue eye and the blood in my body became like ice. Have I not told you that my hearing had become unusually strong? Now I could hear a quick, low, soft sound, like the sound of a clock heard through a wall. It was the beating of the old man's heart. I tried to stand quietly, but the sound grew louder. The old man's fear must have been great indeed. As the sound grew louder, my anger became greater and more painful. But it was more than anger. In the quiet night, in the dark silence of the bedroom, my anger became fear. For the heart was beating so loudly that I was sure someone must hear. The time had come. I rushed into the room crying, Die! Die! The old man gave a loud cry of fear as I fell upon him and held the bed covers tightly over his head. Still his heart was beating, but I smiled as I felt that success was near. For many minutes that heart continued to beat, but at last the beating stopped. The old man I took away the bed covers and held my ear over his heart. There was no sound. Yes, he was dead, dead as a stone. 
his eye would trouble me no more. So, I'm mad, you say? You should have seen how careful I was to put the body where no one could find it. First, I cut off the head, then the arms, and the legs. I was careful not to let a single drop of blood fall on the floor. I pulled up three of the boards that formed the floor and put the pieces of the body there. Then I put the boards down again, carefully, so carefully that no human eye could see that they had been moved. As I finished this work, I heard that someone was at the door. It was now four o'clock in the morning, but still dark. I had no fear, however, as I went down to open the door. Three men were at the door. Three officers of the police. One of the neighbors had heard the old man's cry and had called the police. These three had come to ask questions to search the house. I asked the policeman to come in. The cry, I said, was my own in a dream. The old man, I said, was away. He had gone to visit a friend in the country. I took them through the whole house, telling them to search it all, to search well. I led them finally into the old man's bedroom. As if playing a game with them, I asked them to sit down and talk for a while. My easy, quiet manner made the policemen believe my story. So they sat talking with me in a friendly way. But although I answered them in the same way, I soon wished that they would go. My head hurt, and there was a strange sound in my ears. I talked more and faster. The sound became clearer, and still they sat and talked. Suddenly I knew that the sound was not in my ears, it was not just inside my head. At that moment I must have become quite white. I talked still faster and louder, and the sound, too, became louder. It was a quick, low, soft sound, like the sound of a clock heard through a wall, the sound I knew well. Louder it became, and louder. Why did the men not go? Louder, louder. I stood up and walked quickly around the room. I pushed my chair across the floor to make more noise to cover that terrible sound. I talked even louder, and still the men sat and talked and smiled. Was it possible that they could not hear? No, they heard. I was certain of it. They knew. Now it was they who were playing a game with me. I was suffering more than I could bear from their smiles and from that sound. Louder, louder, louder. Suddenly, I could bear it no longer. I pointed at the boards and cried, Yes! Yes! I killed him! Pull up the boards and you shall see! I killed him! 
But why does his heart not stop beating? Why does it not stop? For the most wild yet homely narrative which I am about to pen, I neither expect nor solicit belief. Mad indeed would I be to expect it, in a case where my very senses reject their own evidence. Yet mad am I not. And very surely do I not dream. But tomorrow I die. And today I would unburthen my soul. My immediate purpose is to place before the world plainly, succinctly, and without comment a series of mere household events. In their consequences, these events have terrified, have tortured, have destroyed me. Yet, I will not attempt to expound them. To me, they have presented little but horror. To many, they will seem less terrible than Baroque's. Hereafter, perhaps, some intellect may be found which will reduce my phantasm to the commonplace. Some intellect more calm, more logical, and far less excitable than my own, which 
will perceive in the circumstances I detail with awe nothing more than an ordinary succession of very natural causes and effects. From my infancy, I was noted for the docility and humanity of my disposition. My tenderness of heart was even so conspicuous as to make me the jest of my companions. I was especially fond of animals and was indulged by my parents with a great variety of pets. With these, I spent most of my time and never was so happy as when feeding and caressing them. This peculiarity of character grew with my growth and, in my manhood, I derived from it one of my principal sources of pleasure. To those who have cherished an affection for a faithful and sagacious dog, I need hardly be at the trouble of explaining the nature or the intensity of the gratification thus derivable. There is something in the unselfish and self-sacrificing love of a brute which goes directly to the heart of him who has had frequent occasion to test the paltry friendship and gossamer fidelity of mere man. I married early and was happy to find in my wife a disposition not uncongenial to my own. Observing my partiality for domestic pets, she lost no opportunity in procuring those of the most agreeable kind. We had birds, goldfish, a fine dog, rabbits, a small monkey, and a cat. This latter was a remarkably large and beautiful animal, entirely black, and sagacious to an astonishing degree. In speaking of his intelligence, my wife, who at heart was not a little tinctured with superstition, made frequent allusion to the ancient popular notion which regarded all black cats as witches in disguise. Not that she was ever serious upon this point, and I mention the matter at all for no better reason than that it happens just now to be remembered. Pluto, this was the cat's name, was my favorite pet and playmate. I alone fed him, and he attended me wherever I went about the house. It was even with difficulty that I could prevent him from following me through the streets. Our friendship lasted in this manner for several years, during which my general temperament and character, through the instrumentality of the fiend in temperance, had, I blush to confess it, experienced a radical alteration for the worse. 
I grew day by day, more moody, more irritable, more regardless of the feelings of others. I suffered myself to use intemperate language to my wife. At length, I even offered her personal violence. My pets, of course, were made to feel the change in my disposition. I not only neglected, but ill-used them. For Pluto, however, I still retained sufficient regard to restrain me from maltreating him. As I made no scruple of maltreating the rabbits, the monkey, or even the dog when, by accident or through affection, they came in my way. But my disease grew upon me. For what disease is like alcohol? And at length, even Pluto, who was now becoming old and consequently somewhat peevish, even Pluto began to experience the effects of my ill temper. One night, returning home, much intoxicated, from one of my haunts about the town, I fancied that the cat avoided my presence. I seized him. When in his fright at my violence, he inflicted a slight wound upon my hand with his teeth. The fury of a demon instantly possessed me. I knew myself no longer. My original soul seemed at once to take its flight from my body, and a more than fiendish malevolence, gin nurtured, thrilled every fiber of my frame. I took from my waistcoat pocket a penknife, opened it, grabbed the poor beast by the throat, and deliberately cut one of its eyes from the socket. I blush, I burn, I shudder, while I pen the damnable atrocity. When reason returned with the morning, when I had slept off the fumes of the night's debauch, I experienced a sentiment half of horror, half of remorse for a crime of which I had been guilty. But it was at best a feeble and equivocal feeling, and the soul remained untouched. I again plunged into excess, and soon drowned in wine all memory of the deed. In the meantime, the cat slowly recovered. The socket of the lost eye presented, it is true, a frightful appearance, but he no longer appeared to suffer any pain. He went about the house as usual, but as might be expected, fled in extreme terror at my approach. I had so much of my old heart left as to be at first grieved by this evident dislike on the part of a creature who had once so loved me. But this feeling soon gave place to irritation, and then came, as if 
to my final and irrevocable overthrow, the spirit of perverseness. Of this spirit, philosophy takes no account. Yet I am not more sure that my soul lives than I am that perverseness is one of the primitive impulses of the human heart. One of the indivisible primary faculties or sentiments which give direction to the character of man. Who has not a hundred times found himself committing a vile or silly action for no other reason than because he knows he should not? Here we have a perpetual inclination in the teeth of our best judgment to violate that which is law merely because we understand it to be such. This spirit of perverseness, I say, came to my final overthrow. It was this unfathomable longing of the soul to vex itself, to offer violence to its own nature, to do wrong for the wrong's sake only, that urged me to continue and finally to consummate the injury I had inflicted upon the unoffending brute. One morning, in cold blood, I slipped a noose about its neck and hung it to the limb of a tree. Hung it with the tears streaming from my eyes and with the bitterest remorse at my heart. Hung it because I knew that it had loved me, and because I felt it had given me no reason of offense. Hung it because I knew that in so doing, I was committing a sin, a deadly sin that would so jeopardize my immortal soul as to place it, if such a thing were possible, even beyond the infinite mercy of the most merciful and most terrible God. On the night of the day on which this cruel deed was done, I was aroused from sleep by the cry of fire. The curtains of my bed were in flames. The whole house was blazing. It was great difficulty that my wife, a servant, and myself made our escape from the conflagration. Destruction was complete. My entire worldly wealth was swallowed up, and I resigned myself thenceforward to despair. I am above the weakness of seeking to establish a sequence of cause and effect between the disaster and the atrocity. I am detailing a chain of facts, and wish not to leave even a possible link imperfect. On the day succeeding the fire, I visited the ruins. The walls, with one exception, had fallen in. This exception was found in a compartment wall, not very thick which stood about the middle of the house, 
and against which had rested the head of my bed. The plastering had here, in great measure, resisted the action of the fire, a fact which I attributed to its having been recently spread. About this wall, a dense crowd were collected, and many persons seemed to be examining a particular portion of it with very minute and eager attention. The words strange, singular, and other similar expressions excited my curiosity. I approached and saw, as if graven in bas relief, upon the white surface, the figure of a gigantic cat. The impression was given with an accuracy truly marvelous. There was a rope about the animal's neck. When I first beheld this apparition, for I could scarcely regard it as less, my wonder and my terror were extreme. But at length, reflection came to my aid. The cat, I remembered, had been hung in a garden adjacent to the house. Upon the alarm of fire, this garden had been immediately filled by the crowd, by some one of whom the animal must have been cut from the tree and thrown through an open window into my chamber. This had probably been done with the view of arousing me from sleep. The falling of other walls compressed the victim of my cruelty into the substance of the freshly spread plaster, the lime of which with the flames and the ammonia from the carcass had then accomplished the portraiture as I saw it. Although I thus readily accounted to my reason, if not altogether to my conscience, for the startling fact just detailed, it did not the less fail to make a deep impression upon my fancy. For months I could not rid myself of the phantasm of the cat, and during this period there came back into my spirit a half-sentiment that seemed, but was not, remorse. I went so far as to regret the loss of the animal, and to look about me among the vile haunts which I now habitually frequented, for another pet of the same species, and of somewhat similar appearance with which to supply its place. One night, as I sat, half stupefied, in a den of more than infamy, my attention was suddenly drawn to some black object reposing upon the head of one of the immense hogsheads of gin, or of rum, which constituted the chief furniture of the apartment. 
I had been looking steadily at the top of this hogshead for some minutes, and what now caused me surprise was the fact that I had not sooner perceived the object thereupon. I approached it and touched it with my hand. It was a black cat, a very large one, fully as large as Pluto and closely resembling him in every respect but one. Pluto had not a white hair upon any portion of his body, but this cat had a large, although indefinite, splotch of white, covering nearly the whole region of the breast. Upon my touching him, he immediately arose, purred loudly, rubbed against my hand, and appeared delighted with my notice. This, then, was the very creature of which I was in search. I had once offered to purchase it of the landlord, but this person made no claim to it, knew nothing of it, had never seen it before. I continued my caresses, and when I prepared to go home, the animal evinced a disposition to accompany me. I permitted it to do so, occasionally stooping and patting it as I proceeded. When it reached the house, it domesticated itself at once and became immediately a great favorite with my wife. For my own part, I soon found a dislike to it arising within me. This was just the reverse of what I had anticipated, but I know not how or why it was. Its evident fondness for myself rather disgusted and annoyed. By slow degrees, these feelings of disgust and annoyance rose into the bitterness of hatred. I avoided the creature. A certain sense of shame and the remembrance of my former deed of cruelty preventing me from physically abusing it. I did not, for some weeks, strike or otherwise violently ill-use it. But gradually, very gradually, I came to look upon it with unutterable loathing and to flee silently from its odious presence as from the breath of a pestilence. What added no doubt to my hatred of the beast was the discovery on the morning after I brought it home that, like Pluto, it had also been deprived of one of its eyes. The circumstance, however, only endeared it to my wife who, as I have already said, possessed in a high degree that humanity of feeling which had once been my distinguishing trait and the source of many of my simplest and purest pleasures. With my aversion to this cat, however, its partiality for myself seemed to increase. 
followed my footsteps with a pertinacity which would be difficult to make the listener comprehend. Whenever I sat, it would crouch beneath my chair or spring upon my knees, covering me with its loathsome caresses. If I arose to walk, it would get between my feet and thus nearly throw me down or fastening its long and sharp claws in my dress, clamber in this manner to my breast. At such times, although I longed to destroy it with a blow, I was yet withheld from so doing, partly by a memory of my former crime, but chiefly, let me confess it at once, by absolute dread of the beast. The dread was not exactly a dread of physical evil, and yet I should be at a loss how otherwise to define it. I am almost ashamed to own, yes, even in this felon's cell, I am almost ashamed to own that the terror and horror with which the animal inspired me had been heightened by one of the merest Chimeras, it would be possible to conceive. My wife had called my attention more than once to the character of the Ma of the White Hair, of which I have spoken, and which constituted the sole visible difference between the strange beast and the one I had destroyed. The listener will remember that this mark, although large, had been originally very indefinite, but by slow degrees, degrees nearly imperceptible and for which a long time my reason struggled to reject as fanciful, it had at length assumed a rigorous distinctness of outline. It was now the representation of an object that I shudder to name. And for this, above all, I loathed and dreaded, and would have rid myself of the monster had I dared. It was now, I say, the image of a hideous, of a ghastly thing, of the gallows. O oh, mournful and terrible engine of horror and of crime, of agony and of death. And now I was indeed wretched beyond the wretchedness of mere humanity. And a brute beast whose fellow I had contemptuously destroyed a brute beast to work out for me, for a man fashioned in the image of the high god, so much of insufferable woe. Alas, neither by day nor by night knew I the blessing of rest any more. During the former, the creature left me no moment alone, and then the latter I started hourly from dreams of unutterable fear to find the hot breath of the thing upon my face 
and its vast weight, an incarnate nightmare that I had no power to shake off, incumbent eternally upon my heart. Beneath the pressure of torments such as these, the feeble remnant of good within me succumbed. Evil thoughts became my sole intimates, the darkest and most evil of thoughts. The moodiness of my usual temper increased to hatred of all things and of all mankind, while from the sudden, frequent, and ungovernable outbursts of a fury to which I now blindly abandoned myself, my uncomplaining wife, alas, was the most usual and the most patient of sufferers. One day, she accompanied me upon some household errand into the cellar of the old building which our poverty compelled us to inhabit. The cat followed me down the steep stairs and nearly throwing me headlong, exasperated me to madness, lifting an axe and forgetting in my wrath the childish dread which had hitherto stayed my hand. I aimed a blow at the animal, which, of course, would have proved instantly fatal had it descended as I wished. But the blow was arrested by the hand of my wife, goaded by the interference into a rage more than demonic. I withdrew my arm from her grasp, buried the axe in her brain. She fell dead upon the spot, without a groan. The hideous murder accomplished, I set myself forthwith, and with entire deliberation, to the task of concealing the body. I knew that I could not remove it from the house, either by day or by night, without the risk of being observed by the neighbors. Many projects entered my mind. At one period I thought of cutting the corpse into minute fragments and destroying them by fire. At another, I resolved to dig a grave for it in the floor of the cellar. Again, I deliberated about casting it in the well in the yard, about packing it in a box as if merchandise with the usual arrangements, and so getting a porter to take it from the house. Finally, I hit upon what I considered a far better expedient than either of these. I determined to wall it up in the cellar as the monks of Middle Ages are recorded to have walled up their victims. For a purpose such as this, the cellar was well adapted. Its walls were loosely constructed and had been lately plastered throughout with a rough plaster which the dampness of the atmosphere had prevented from hardening. Moreover, in one of the walls was a projection caused by a false chimney or fireplace 
that had been filled up and made to resemble the rest of the cellar. I made no doubt that I could readily displace the bricks at this point, insert the corpse, and wall the hole up as before, so that no eye could detect anything suspicious. And in this calculation, I was not deceived. By means of a crowbar, I easily dislodged the bricks and, having carefully deposited the body against the inner wall, I propped it in that position. With little trouble, I relayed the whole structure as it had originally stood. Having procured mortar, sand, and hair with every possible precaution, I prepared a plaster which could not be distinguished from the old, and with this I very carefully went over the new brickwork. When I had finished, I felt satisfied that all was right. The wall did not present the slightest appearance of having been disturbed. The rubbish on the floor was picked up with the minutest care. I looked around triumphantly and said to myself, Here, at least, then, my labor has not been in vain. My next step was to look for the beast which had been the cause of so much wretchedness, for I had, at length, firmly resolved to put it to death. Had I been able to meet with it at the moment, there could have been no doubt of its fate. But it appeared that the crafty animal had been alarmed at the violence of my previous anger and forbore to present itself in my present mood. It is impossible to describe or to imagine the deep blissful sense of relief which the absence of the detested creature occasioned in my bosom. It did not make its appearance during the night, and thus for one night at least, since its introduction into the house, I soundly and tranquilly slept. I slept even with the burden of murder upon my soul. The second and third day passed, and still my tormentor came not. Once again, I breathed as a free man. The monster in terror had fled the premises forever. I should behold it no more. My happiness was supreme. The guilt of my dark deed disturbed me but little. Some few inquiries had been made, but these had been readily answered. Even a search had been instituted, but of course nothing was to be discovered. I looked upon my future felicity as secured. Upon the fourth day of the assassination, a party of the police came 
very unexpectedly into the house, and proceeded again to make rigorous investigation of the premises. Secure, however, in the inscrutability of my place of concealment, I felt no embarrassment whatever. The officers bade me accompany them in their search. They left no nook or corner unexplored. At length, for the third or fourth time, they descended into the cellar. I quivered not in a muscle. My heart beat calmly, as that of one who slumbers in innocence. I walked the cellar from end to end. I folded my arms upon my bosom and roamed easily to and fro. The police were thoroughly satisfied and prepared to depart. The glee at my heart was too strong to be restrained. I burned to say, if but one word by way of triumph, and to render doubly sure their assurance of my guiltlessness. Gentlemen, I said at last as the party ascended the steps, I delight to have allayed your suspicions. I wish you all health and a little more courtesy. By the by, gentlemen, this, this is a very well-constructed house. In the rapid desire to say something easily, I scarcely knew what I uttered at all. I may say an excellently well-constructed house. These walls, are you going, gentlemen? These walls are solidly put together. And here, through the mere frenzy of bravado, I rapped heavily with a cane which I held in my hand upon that very portion of the brickwork behind which stood the corpse of the wife of my bosom. But may God shield and deliver me from the fangs of the arch-fiend! No sooner had the reverberation of my blows sunk into silence than I was answered by a voice from within the tomb. By a cry, at first muffled and broken like the sobbing of a child, and then quickly swelling into one long, loud, and continuous scream, utterly anomalous and inhuman. A howl, a wailing shriek, half of horror and half of triumph, such as might have arisen only out of hell, conjointly from the throats of the damned in their agony, and of the demons that exult in the damnation. Of my own thoughts, it is folly to speak. Swooning, I staggered to the opposite wall. For one instant, the party upon the stairs remained motionless through extremity of terror and of awe. In the next, dozen stout arms were toiling at the wall. It fell bodily. The corpse, already greatly decayed and clotted with gore, stood erect before the eyes of the spectators. Upon its head, with red extended mouth, 
and solitary eye of fire sat the hideous beast whose craft had seduced me into murder and whose informing voice had consigned me to the hangman. I had walled the monster up within the tomb. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered, weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. Tis some visitor, I muttered, tapping at my chamber door. Only this, and nothing more. Ah, distinctly I remember, it was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow. Vainly I had sought to borrow from my books surcease of sorrow. Sorrow for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels named Lenore, nameless here or evermore. And the silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before. So that now, to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating, "'Tis some visitor entreating Entrance at my chamber door. Some late visitor in greeting entrance at my chamber door. This it is, and nothing more. Presently my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer. Sir, said I, or madam, a truly your forgiveness I implore, but the fact is, I was napping, and so gently you came rapping, and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door, that I scarce was sure I heard you. Here I opened wide the door. Darkness there, and nothing more. Deep into that darkness peering. Long 
I stood there wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortals ever dared to dream before. But the silence was unbroken, and the stillness gave no token, and the only word there spoken was the whispered word This I whispered, and an echo murmured back the word, Merely this, and nothing more. Back into the chamber, turning, all my soul within me burning. Soon again I heard a tapping, somewhat louder than before. Surely, said I, surely that is something at my window lattice. Uh, let me see then what thereat is, and this mystery explore. Let my heart be still a moment, and this mystery explore. It is the wind, and nothing more. Open here I flung the shutter, when, with many a flirt and flutter, in there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obeisance made he, not a minute stopped or stayed he, but with the mien of lord or lady, perched above my chamber door, perched upon a bust of palace, just above my chamber door, perched and sat, and nothing more. Then this ebony bird, beguiling my sad fancy into smiling by the grave and stern decorum, of the countenance it wore. Though thy crest be shorn and shaven, thou, I said, art sure no craven, ghastly, grim, and ancient raven, wandering from the nightly shore. Tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's Plutonian shore. I marveled this ungainly foul to hear discourse so plainly, though its answer little meaning, little relevancy bore. For we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door. Bird or beast, upon the sculptured bust above his chamber door, with such a name as Nevermore. But the raven, sitting lonely on the placid bust, 
spoke only that one word, as if his soul in that one word he did outpour. Nothing further then he uttered, not a feather then he fluttered, till I scarcely more than muttered, Other friends have flown before, on the morrow he will leave me, as my hope have flown before. Then the bird said, Nevermore. Startled at the stillness broken by reply so aptly spoken, Doubtless, said I, what it utters is, It's only stock and store, Caught from some unhappy master, Whom unmerciful disaster Followed fast and followed faster, Till his songs one burden bore, Till the dirges of his hope That melancholy burden bore Of never, never more. But the raven, still beguiling All my fancy into smiling, Straight I wheeled a cushioned seat In front of bird and bust and door. Then, upon the velvet sinking, I betook myself to linking, fancy unto fancy, thinking what this ominous bird of yore, what this grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt, and ominous bird of yore meant in croaking, nevermore. This I sat engaged in guessing, but no syllable expressing to the fowl whose fiery eyes now burned into my bosom's core. This and more I sat divining, with my head at ease reclining, on the cushion's velvet lining that the lamplight gloated o'er, but whose velvet violet lining with the lamplight gloating o'er. She shall press, ah, nevermore. Then, methought the air grew denser, perfume from an unseen censer, swung by seraphim, whose footfalls tinkled on the tufted floor. Wretch, I cried, thy God hath lent me by these angels, he hath sent thee, respite, respite and nepenthe from thy memories of Lenore. Quaff, oh, quaff this kind nepenthe, and forget this lost Lenore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still if bird or devil, whether tempter sent or whether tempest tossed thee here ashore, desolate, yet all undaunted, on this desert land enchanted, on this home by horror haunted, tell me truly, I implore, is there, 
Is there balm in Gilead? Tell me, tell me, I implore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil. By that heaven that bends above us, by that God we both adore. Tell this soul with sorrow laden, within the distant Aden, it shall clasp a sainted maiden whom the angels name Lenore. Clasp a rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore. Quote the raven, That word our sign in parting, bird or fiend, I shrieked up starting, get thee back into the tempest and the night's Plutonian shore, leave no black plume as a token of that why thy soul hath spoken, leave my loneliness unbroken, quit the bust above my door, take thy beak from out my heart, and take thy form from off my door. Quote the raven, evermore. And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting on the pallid bust of Pallas, just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming, and the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor. And my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted Telltale Heart, The Black Cat, and The Raven were written by Edgar Allan Poe and read by Fred Eder. Now for something a little different. We're going to bring you The Golden Arm. This is a classic campfire story that I told to my students every year at Halloween. Studio Stargazer brings my reading to life in a new and powerful way. This will scare you, so be prepared for The Golden Arm. And hear more of Fred's work on Fred's Front Porch Podcast on Spotify, And latest episodes are only on Patreon. Shocktober.
it's all right. Come and sit down. No, dude, everything's fine. Just relax. We're all much nicer than you think here, and we're going to get along. The campfire is warm, so just sit down. Now, listen, folks, I know what, you know, has been going around the camp uh, this week, right? All of the stories uh, about the about the ghost and everything, and I don't want people to be afraid. And the best way that I know to cure fear is to give you the facts. And so I am going to be honest with you, and I am going to tell you exactly what happened. And I have this from like nine different sources, so you don't have to worry. What I'm going to tell you is true, and then you don't have to be scared anymore. Right now, the first thing you need to know is that yes, it is true that the building in which we are sleeping was originally the home of the uh, factory owner and his wife in this story. Um, and I don't want that to worry you. It's it, it is again, I, when I give you the facts, then you don't have to be scared. Yes, this is their house. But we have remade it now, it's been rebuilt, and now it works very nicely as, as a sleeping quarters for, uh, for our classes. So you're gonna relax and everything's okay. The second fact you need to know is that yes, uh, the, the graveyard is right on the other side of that hill. It's half three quarters of a mile away. Um, and you know, if, if you want, then tomorrow morning, uh, in the light, I'll be happy to walk you over there, and I will show you her grave. Um, so you don't have to, you know, freak out. It's true. Yeah. So let's not be scared at all, okay? Now, here is the story, and uh, I'm going to give you the facts. It takes place uh, in World War II, and in those days, uh, it was the first time that women were actually allowed to work prior to this, it, it just wasn't done. Women rarely had jobs. Uh, but now, with all of the men off fighting World War II, women were taking jobs in factories that they never had before. And there was a woman who worked in uh, an airplane factory. She helped to, to uh, create all of the airplanes that were used to win World War II. Roosevelt, as we will talk about uh, in class next week, uh, talked about the 100,000 airplanes, and there's a wonderful story around that. She helped create them, okay? She was one of those people. Now, the problem with her was, like many of you, she didn't care much about rules, you see. And one of the rules was that you had to, you couldn't wear uh, dresses with long sleeves, you know, and for obvious reasons, it was a safety rule, but rules didn't apply to her. And so there she was, you know, one day working in the factory. And her job was very simple. She would pick up a piece of steel and she would put it onto the conveyor belt and it would go down the conveyor belt and then <clears throat> it would get cut in half inside the little uh, chamber there, you see. And that was the job. And so there she is at work one day, doing her thing. And uh, 
She picks up the piece of steel and puts it on the conveyor belt. And she picks up the piece of steel and she puts it on the conveyor belt. And then she feels a little tug on her arm. And that's kind of strange and she tries to pull it away and then she realizes that the sleeve of her dress has gotten caught under one of these sheets of steel and she is being dragged down the conveyor belt. And she's trying everything she can to get her arm out and she's getting closer and closer and pulling harder and harder and then suddenly, bam, down comes the blade and it cuts her arm off. I mean, blood spurting everywhere. It was just absolutely disgusting. And she's screaming and carrying on and the factory owner comes running down the stairs and says, oh my God, oh my God, are you okay? What happened? Oh my God. And she says, well, I'm going to sue you for everything you've got. You cost me my arm. I'm going to... I'm, I'm going to sue you and take your whole factory. And the guy says, no, 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 you don't have to do that. I, I'll work it out for you, really. I, I'll, I'll get you a new arm. I'll, I'll, I'll get you a golden arm. And the woman looks at him and says, you better. And boom, she passes out. You know, that's how that shit goes. Um, and so the factory owner does this, right? He has commissioned the most beautiful golden arm ever known uh, anywhere. No one has ever created a piece of art like this. It is absolutely beautiful. And after he had it, and he spent a lot of money, but after he had it, he really wanted to keep it. He'd never seen anything so beautiful, but he had to give it to the woman because otherwise, you know, she's going to sue him. And so he does. And he takes it to the hospital and they attach the arm to the woman. And then, oddly enough, man brings her flowers, right? And, and uh, when she starts feeling better, he asks her out. And, uh, you know, after, uh, you know, go bowling, go to the movies, do all the things that you did in the 1940s. Uh, and the woman thinks this is strange because he never showed any interest in her before, but whatever, that's great, you know. Um, and finally... The man takes her out to dinner and then right there at the table, he drops down on one knee and he says, you know, I love you more than anything in the world. I've never loved anyone so much as I love you. So please, will you do me the honor of marrying me? Now the woman is not stupid, right? He never showed any interest in her before the arm. But now, all of a sudden, he seems really interested in knowing all about her. And obviously, you know, marrying her. And so, she looks at him carefully and says, I'll marry you. And then she reaches out with that golden arm and gently puts her fingers around his neck. And she says, but only on one condition. Well, what's that, dear? You have to promise that you'll bury me with my golden arm. Oh, yes, dear, no problem. I'll be happy to do it. And she, you know, choked him a little tighter. And then she said, and if you don't, Get it. Yes, dear. Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. And so they got married. 
And they were married for 15, 20 years, something like that. And finally, the woman got sick. And the man went upstairs uh, to see her lying on her deathbed. And, you know, he's very sad. Oh, dear. I'm so sorry. But it doesn't look good. And, and her eyes are closed, you know. And then, very slowly, she opens them. And she reaches up to her husband with her golden arm. And she grabs him by the neck and she pulls him down and she says, Remember your promise. Promise, dear? I don't know what you mean. You promised to bury me with golden arm. Oh, yeah. Okay, dear. I, I will. And remember, if you don't, I'll come back and get it. Yes, dear. Okay. Got it. And then she lets go. The man stands up and he goes downstairs. And he sleeps on the couch. And in the morning, the sun came up, and the man woke up, but the woman didn't woke up. She, uh, she was gone. And so the man calls the coroner, and he calls the, 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 the dudes from the cemetery, and the undertaker, and all those people, and they have a funeral, and he cries, and they bury her. And then that night, it was starting to rain a little bit, and the man smiled, and he says, Now, at long last, I can get that golden arm back. And so he gets ready to go. It's starting to rain just a little harder, but it doesn't bother him. He's been waiting a long time for this. And so he gathers three things that he, that he decides to take with him. He gets a shovel. He gets a burlap sack. And he gets an axe. And now he goes to the graveyard. And he gets to the gate and he opens it very slowly and of course just as he's stepping in lightning strikes, hits a tree trunk right next to him the branch tumbles down misses him by an inch and he ducks out of the way and undaunted he carries on he goes into the graveyard walks slowly to her grave. The wind is beginning to howl now. The rain is falling faster. Now, he puts down the axe and drops the burlap sack. And he sticks the shovel into the ground. He begins to dig. 
dig and dig until finally his shovel hits something hard. He dusts it off as he jumps into the open grave. There it is. The woman's casket. He opens it. Very slowly. And he sees the woman lying there dead. Her eyes are shut. But they look as though they might just open at any moment. But of course they now the man smiles. Finally, finally, he says, I can get back my golden arm. And he steps out of the grave, tosses away the shovel, and picks up the axe. He lifts the axe high over his head, and then slams down against the arm, severing it. Completely. There is still blood in her body that begins to fill the casket. And he takes the golden arm, leaps out of the grave as quickly as he can, and as lightning begins to strike, and the rain intensifies and the wind howls, he grabs everything he needs. He puts the burlap sack out and sticks the golden arm into it. He grabs the shovel and he runs as fast as he can back home. He gets home and he goes upstairs. He takes the burlap sack, opens it, and takes out the golden arm. He looks at it lovingly. And there's still just a little blood dripping from it. He lifts his mattress and hides the golden arm underneath it. Then he tosses his shovel and his burlap sack. And he gets in bed to go to sleep. In a few minutes, he hears something far, far away. It's not really recognizable. It's just a distant sound like But he can't really understand what he heard and was it just the wind? He pulls the covers up just a little now, as he's drifting back to sleep, he hears the sound again, closer this time, maybe just down the road, he hears Tighter, and he begins to think. It's all right. It's all right. I locked the 
everything was all right. I, I, I never had anything. I'm all right. It's just my imagination. It's nothing about which you could worry. Just relax. But now he hears it again. Just outside his door. And now he really does get scared as he hears his front door open and he hears the steps as something is climbing his stairs. Now he begins to shiver and he thinks, No, no, it's all right. I have everything that I need. But now outside in the hall, he can hear her heavy breathing. takes the covers down from his head. And the last thing he ever hears before the axe comes down on his neck is... If you got it! <laughs> <laughs> 